Well, good morning. It is good to be here with you all. Uh, if you are new with us, I want to say a really special welcome. So glad that you have joined with us here on, on Easter Sunday. Uh, we're just delighted to have you. My name is Jonathan. I am the campus pastor here, and I, I've been looking forward to Easter Sunday now for, for some time. Uh, this is the first Easter Sunday that we've been able to celebrate now for three years. The last two we have not been able to gather and so it's, it is a good day to be here. And so as we, as we kind of start off our, our service, I, I wanna start with something that has been a, a tradition, uh, part of the church for, for a very long time. In fact, we began our service with it. It's this little sort of call and response. He is risen, he is risen indeed. If, if you're new to church and that sounds really weird, it, it actually comes from, well, the just after the passage we just read. Two men had just met the, the risen Jesus and they run back and they tell the disciples, he has risen indeed. And so all the way back, sort of four or five hundreds is when the church began this call and response, a way to remind ourselves of what we are really celebrating here today. So, so let's begin just with this reminder. He is risen. Amen. Amen. That is what we are celebrating here today. The Easter Sunday is the celebration that Jesus rose from the grave. And now we've just, we've just read this passage uh, from Luke 24. So if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you actually to open up. Uh, Luke 24 is where we're going to be this morning. But as we start with Easter Sunday, we, we kind of have to address the, the giant question that is always part of this day. And that is, do, do you really believe this? Right? Do, do you really believe that, that Jesus died, really died, and that he really rose again? Right? Because just to be clear, when, when we say that, we don't mean that Jesus rose in some sort of emotional sense. Right? Just he's, he's in my heart. Or, or in some sort of spiritual or, or, or mystical sense. What we mean when we say Jesus rose from the grave is really Jesus rose. Not, not some sort of zombie idea, but, but real, genuinely is alive again having already died. And so, so the question we kind of have to wrestle with is, is do you really believe that? Right? And, and in one sense, I, I understand the, the, the apprehension, the, the doubt that comes with that kind of a claim. It, it doesn't sound like something, well, that normally happens, right? It sounds like a, like a made-up kind of story. And especially after, you know, going through these last couple of years and, and we're used to hearing made-up stories all the time. Right? We're used to people making things up or, or bending the truth a little bit or elaborating to kind of make the point. Is that really what's going on here? Right? Is this just kind of the, the first you know, ruse, the first hoax that was pulled off on people who couldn't understand anything more? But here's the thing. We do believe that he genuinely rose. In fact, there's lots of reasons why I could give for, for why we genuinely believe that. We, we've actually talked about some of them here uh, in different past sermons and series. We've talked about some of the reasons why we believe that Jesus genuinely rose from the dead. One, one really, well, a couple really quick here off the top is just simply, you know, even at the time, there was lots of people who wanted to disprove this. And it would have been very simple for them simply to say, all right, look, you keep on saying he's alive, but here's his body. We had it under guard 
And yet no one could ever actually do that. Right? We're not taking this on the account of one or two people who, who maybe saw Jesus in a brief moment and have continued to elaborate. No, actually, when the Bible talks about who saw Jesus, it's not one or two. It's a couple hundred people who saw Jesus alive after he had died. In fact, even just the, the 12 disciples who followed Jesus around, all of them agree, in fact, go through the rest of their lives declaring in one voice all together, Jesus is alive. None of them turned back later. None of them argued and said, well, no, that's not really what happened. Actually, they were united in this the whole time. If I can use a bit of a, a current example, and I'm, I'm sorry to use one that is, I will admit, uh, politically charged, but hear me, I'm not going to make a political point if you consider what happened, even just think back a, a few months ago to, to all the, the protests, the trucker convoy that was going on. I'm not talking about politics, okay? All right, we're not going there. But just look at what happened to that movement. It started out with a very particular goal, and as, as it grew, it sort of morphed and changed all throughout. And in fact, when, when the leaders were eventually sort of arrested, detained, everything just kind of fell apart afterwards. How much different is the beginning of the church to that? Jesus is, is put to death, and that's when the church begins. In fact, all of the disciples go through their lives for decades, all claiming and having this one unified message, Jesus is alive. In fact, they, they, were, they were tortured and, and most of them put to death because that is what they preached. In fact, one of the things I find so compelling about their testimony is that, well, none of them start off believing it. None of them start off at the beginning going, yeah, that's exactly what I had expected to happen, right? That would be far more worrying in one sense, like, really, you did? Now, in one sense, they could have. Jesus had been very clear about it. But all of them began with doubt. In fact, even in the, in the passage that we've just read, it begins with disbelief, right? These women go to the tomb and they, they want to make sure Jesus has been buried properly. And so they go expecting to find, well, Roman guards and a tomb, Instead, they find an empty tomb and an angel standing there who declares, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And so they run back to the disciples and, and they go and they say, the tomb is empty, we saw an angel. And verse 11 in our chapter says, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. The disciples hearing about this empty tomb go, look guys, you're, you're just being overly hopeful. It's not really what happened, guys. That, that kind of thing doesn't happen. And so the chapter continues and we meet these two men who are walking along this road going to, to their hometown of, of Emmaus. And Jesus shows up and he starts walking with them. And Jesus, he, he plays this one really cool. If you read through the story, you know, Jesus is very kind of secretive as he goes about. They're, they're talking and he says, well, what are you talking about? They say, we're talking about Jesus and everything that just happened with Jesus. And he goes, oh, why don't you tell me about what happened to Jesus? And so they start to explain, you know, here, here's everything that happened and, and he was crucified, but now everyone's saying that the tomb is empty. In fact, they say some of the people we're traveling with, they went and saw the tomb and it was empty, but they couldn't find a body anywhere. And so Jesus goes on and he starts explaining and he says, well, well don't you realize this is what all of the scripture was talking about, getting, getting ready. And as they listen to him, finally, they realize this is Jesus who's talking to us. And they run off back and they tell the disciples and the di disciples still don't believe it. 
And so that brings us to our, our text here this morning, what, what I want us to, to focus and look at together. If you have a Bible, it's Luke 24, chapter, or verse 36. Let me invite you, if you're able, to stand with me as we read the word of God. This is what the word of God says. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet that it is I myself. Uh, touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Thus far the reading of God's word, you may be seated. See, the disciples, they don't start off believing. In fact, they start out pretty clearly in a position of, of doubt. But that's not where they end. Right? The evidence of the resurrection in one sense wasn't just that the tomb was empty. It's easy to find an empty tomb. The evidence for the resurrection was that Jesus showed up alive in front of them. In fact, the resurrection changes everything that they do from this point forward. It changes how they think. It changes how they read their Bible. In fact, it's going to change how they act going forward. And, and here's my prayer for us today is that it would do the same thing that it would change the way that we act, how we think, how we read our Bibles, that the resurrection of Jesus defines our lives as well. So Jesus is alive, he fulfills the scripture, and then he commissions us to rejoice. So we're gonna work through this passage just a little bit, and, and I want us to, to kind of understand, first of all, what, what, what evidence is Jesus gonna give for, for why he is alive? Back in verse 36, it says, while they were talking about these things, that's going back to the disciples, right? These guys from the Emmaus Road have come and they, they've shown up and they said, Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed, right? And they, they don't believe it, but they're still kind of trying to work through all these things. And it says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Right? I, again, I love the honesty that the Bible is written with. Right? It's written with an honesty that says, look, when, when Jesus showed up, they didn't just immediately go, yeah, of course, that's exactly what I was expecting. No, they weren't expecting that. They had just watched Jesus die. Right? His disciples, they were with him when Jesus got arrested and carried off. They would have seen him after he had been beaten and flogged. They would have seen him put on the cross and be executed there. They would have watched that. They would have seen him even breathe his last breath and even seen the soldier take a spear and put it right through him. 
You're not, you're not expecting after that to see Jesus again. And so even when Jesus shows up, they still don't believe it. And so Jesus says to them, verse 38, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, that it's I myself. Touch me, see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones that you see that I have. Right? Jesus knows exactly what is going through their minds. He knows that they're looking at him and going, I'm pretty sure this isn't real. I'm pretty sure I'm just seeing a ghost, a spirit, something, but this can't be. And so Jesus begins to do, he does two things. One, he invites them to actually investigate his resurrection. Come, touch me, all right? But secondly, he does so with love and compassion. Right? Jesus, Jesus knows that their minds are, are, are breaking at this point. And so that they are trying to figure out, and he doesn't come in, he doesn't get mad and say, look, I told you this was going to happen. Why haven't you figured this out yet? No, Jesus very lovingly shows up and he says, all right, come. Come actually, try and figure this out. Come touch me. Look, I've got skin, I've got bones, I've got muscles. I'm actually really here. He invites them in to actually investigate and try and understand what is going on. And I think, I think if, you're, if you're here and you're someone, you're thinking, yeah, I, I don't know if this really happens. Hear me, this is the invitation. Come, investigate. Why do we, un, why do we think that Jesus rose again? Right? This is not something forbidden for us to ever ask or think or you know, question, try and figure out. In fact, it's far the opposite. It's something Jesus himself says, yeah, come, investigate. Try and figure this one out. Put it to the test. And so verse 40, he says, uh, it says, when, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Right? Luke doesn't go into detail here. John kind of helps us understand what Jesus is doing. He's showing them the scars. He's showing them the scars that, yeah, he is actually the one who was on the cross. That was really him. Right? Jesus really died and he really rose again. And even after all this, the disciples are still having a hard time trying to understand what has happened. So verse 41 says, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling and said, uh, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And he gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Right, still seeing Jesus, they're still in that state of disbelief. It's starting to become joy mixed with that disbelief, but they're still trying to figure out what is actually happening here. And so Jesus says, all right, give me something to eat. And he eats it in front of them. Jesus is real. He's really alive. Look, it's not a trick. Right? And there's a very good reason why Jesus is going to spend this time with his disciples while he's going over and over and over with them that he is really there. It's because this moment is not going to only define their lives, but really the rest of the church. Hear me, the entire church, this church is only here because Jesus is alive. This is our foundation point. This is why we gather and meet every Sunday, even across the world. Why do churches gather? It's because Jesus is alive. Paul, when he writes his letter to, to, to the Corinthian church, he, he defends what he calls of first importance, that Jesus died and that he rose again. This is part of his argument that he, he gives. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul's point here is that, look, everything in the Christian life is based off of this one point. If Jesus isn't, is not raised from the dead, your hope, your, your faith, none of it is worth anything. It is all useless and worthless. In fact, more than that, if Jesus is not alive, people should look at us and go, oh, I'm so sorry for them. They should look on us with pity because it would be foolish to believe that if Jesus were not alive. See, Jesus being alive is the foundation of the church. It is the foundation of our lives. See, if Jesus is alive, it is worth everything we have to give. In fact, it's more than everything we could ever give. If Jesus is alive, it changes how we see death. It changes how we see God. It changes what the Bible, how we read the Bible. It changes how we live now. And so Jesus takes time with his disciples. He wants them to understand the reality of his resurrection because this is going to change all of those things. It's an invitation for us to actually study what, is, what does the Bible actually have to say about the resurrection? Actually understand this because if Jesus is alive, if Jesus died and really rose again, it does change how we think. It changes how we live. So why is that? What, what does it change? Well, Jesus goes on to actually begin to explain that for us. A after he has spent some time with his disciples, and I'm sure they all poked and prodded him for a little while just to, just to really be sure, Jesus begins to teach them. Verse 44, he says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Right? First thing Jesus teaches his disciples is that Jesus actually fulfills the scripture, all of scripture. He's trying to teach them, look, everything that was written in the Bible is actually about me, right? And you, you might be a little confused as to why Jesus chooses these, these three things, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Well, it's because actually this is, this is really what we now call the Old Testament. This is how they, they broke it down. It was law, prophets, and, and what's called writings. In fact, even today, if you pick up a Hebrew Bible, it'll have the, the word on the front is Tanakh, which is an acronym for these three different things. T is Torah, law. N is Nevaim, that's prophets. C is Ketuvim, that's writings. Law, prophets, writings. Psalms is the biggest book in the writings. In fact, what Jesus is saying here is, look, everything in the Old Testament was pointing towards me. And in fact, just to kind of complete this thought, Jesus has also commissioned the disciples to write the New Testament. Back in John chapter 16, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Right? Jesus not only says everything in the Old Testament was all about me, actually everything that you guys are going to write in the New Testament is about me. The entire Bible is focused on Jesus. All of it is about him. 
In fact, if you were with us here a couple weeks ago, back when we looked at chapter 18, we kind of walked through a lot of the Bible and saw how how these major themes are, are developed all throughout, and they're actually pointing to what Jesus is going to do on the cross. But but what we noticed was the disciples never got it, right? Jesus explaining all these things and the disciples just at the end of the day go, I didn't understand what he said, <laughs> right? And here we get the answer. Verse 45, it says, then he opened their minds to understand the scripture, right? Well, why is it that the disciples just never really understood, never really got what Jesus was talking about or doing It's because outside of this work of God to actually help us understand what we're all a blank page as well. I'm not saying that you can't literally understand the words that are on the page. Of course you can. What I'm saying is outside of God's work, it never amounts to to belief, to application into your life. That's the work of God to help us understand and put these things into practice. So really, whenever we read the Bible, we should be praying, God, help me to understand what you have written. But verse 46, 46, Jesus goes on and says, Thus it is written about the Christ, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. I'm going to argue this is the best, the most succinct, the clearest explanation of what the Bible is all about. What is the story of the Bible? Well, it's about God working through Jesus to undo the effects of sin. The curse of sin is going to to be undone through this Christ, this Messiah, anointed Savior who is coming. And so this whole book, all 66 books of the Bible, are pointing towards what God is going to do in Jesus and how he will undo the work of sin. Right from the very beginning, when sin first enters into the world, God says, look, there's a curse that's going to come. There there, there are all manner of things that are going to go wrong. In fact, there's a separation from God's presence that happens. But God also says there is an ultimate judgment that is yet to come. And God in his mercy holds back that ultimate judgment. Ultimately, what, what Jesus is going to deal with on the cross and so you might say, well then, well, then why do we have the rest of the Bible? Why is there so much room in between you know, the beginning and, and now when Jesus has died and risen again? Well, I'm sure God actually has many reasons and many ways to answer that question, but I think here is one of them. Because if Jesus had just come right away in, in Genesis chapter 4, boom, we'd have no idea what that meant. We'd have no idea what he was doing unless we had seen, if you will, the the years and years of people trying to be good enough on their own, we would not understand how necessary it was for Jesus to die in our place. See, we all have about a thousand excuses already lined up for why we do bad things. When we sin, it's not usually our fault. We have a whole list of reasons, right? Different stressors that are going on, different things that, that led us to do that. And in one sense, the Old Testament is a long story of God knocking down all the reasons that we may have built up, right? We say things like, well, you know, it's just because, it's just because everyone around me is causing all this stress. So God takes the most righteous man in the world at the time, talking about Noah, wipes the slate clean and says, all right, Noah, continue on. 
Here's, here's Noah's chance. He, he has no one else to influence him. But how does the story end? Well, it ends with him drunk on the floor. He can't actually follow God either. You might say, well, okay, well, if God would just speak directly to me, clearly I'd be able to actually follow him. I wouldn't have these problems. So let's read the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, people God would directly speak to, tell, you know, go here, do this, and all of them fail to follow after God. You might say, well, okay, well, what we need is God to actually write down what he wants us to do. So God gives the Ten Commandments and he gives a whole bunch of laws. He tells the people of Israel exactly what they should be doing. And Moses doesn't even make it down the mountain before they've broken nearly every one of them. You might say, okay, well, well what you need is, is God to write down those laws and then everyone to agree, this is what we are going to do. We're all on the same page. We're all going to work together. Yes, we're going to follow God. Then we'll be able to do it. Well, guess what happens? That's exactly what goes on in Israel. They all commit themselves, yes, we are going to follow after God in everything that he has called us to do. We are going to do that, and they don't even make it out of the desert. They're still there, and they've broken all of them. You might say, okay, but what they need then is for God to write down all of his laws. They all are going to agree to follow them, and then they need a leader, a king, who's going to really make sure that everything is going right. Let's read the story of King David. And King David is, is by the end of the story, well, a murderous adulterer, it doesn't go well. And you might say, well, okay, well, what you need is then God to write everything down. You need everyone to agree. You need a king who's going to lead you. And then God, can you come and speak and speak directly into our situation? And that's what the prophets do. For, for hundreds of years, God sends prophets to speak directly to them, to tell them what he wants them to do. And what happens? They kill the prophets. In fact, the Old Testament is just a series of attempts to say, here's how we can fix it ourselves and for all of those to play out and all go wrong. At the end of the day, what we're left with is, is just our complete inability to deal with our sin and facing the horrific consequences of them and finally to cry out, I need someone to help me. Oh, I need a savior. We trick ourselves into thinking all the time, you know, I'm not that bad. I've got this stuff under control. My pride, my arrogance, my quick temper, it's, it's not that bad. I've got it down. My addictions, they don't actually control me. No, I'm in control of my addictions. And the Bible is written to show us it doesn't work that way. As much as we think, no, no, I can deal with this. Actually, the Bible shows us hundreds and thousands of attempts and none of them go right. Jesus says the whole Bible is pointing towards me that repentance and forgiveness would be proclaimed in his name. See, when Jesus goes to the cross, he goes to deal with that final judgment of our sins. He takes that in our place, that, that, that the final judgment before God would fall not on us, but it would fall on Jesus. He takes our place. He pays that penalty so that anyone who repents, turns away from their sin, says, I can't do it myself, but actually says, but Jesus has done all of it. Jesus has lived that perfect life and it's only in him that I can be forgiven. Whoever does that, Jesus says, there is forgiveness of our sins. Jesus died to pay the penalty in our place, but that's not where the story ends. No, actually, the story ends in life. 
Jesus rose again. And because Jesus rose again, it means two things for us. Number one, it means we have hope in eternal life. See, if God was able to raise Jesus from the grave, so we also have a hope in eternal life after death. How would we know that, that there was life after death unless someone came back and told us, and here is Jesus standing there, risen, to show us what it looks like. For those who hope in him, we have life forever. But number two, it means we have hope now. Because when we trust in Jesus, we are given a new life now. God does not just leave us in our, in our addictions and our self-destruction. He actually grants us new life to be able to follow after him. Paul says the old has passed away. The new has come. We are a new creation in Jesus. And so the resurrection of Jesus is our hope for this life that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, but it also gives us a hope for the life to come when our sinful hearts are dealt with forever. And see, that is the message of the Bible, front to back. It's either pointing forward to what Jesus is doing or it's pointing us back to what he has already done. Paul puts it this way in the book of Colossians. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven or on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All things are for Jesus. Everything that has been created, everything the Bible has been working towards is focused and fixated on what Jesus has done on the cross, his death and his resurrection. That's what the Bible is all about. It's what our church is all about. It's the calling that our lives are all about Jesus. They're pointing to the fact that Jesus is alive. If he is alive, it means we have hope in eternal life. It means we can have forgiveness of our sins, that we can have a new life now, and in fact, a new purpose to glorify him. And so in light of all this, Jesus then commissions his disciples to rejoice. Jesus calls his disciples. Look back in verse 48. He says, you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus sends them out with this promise. They are to go to be his witnesses, to tell others about what Jesus has done tells them to wait until they, they receive the, the promised Holy Spirit. In fact, it's going to come in just a few weeks on, on Pentecost Sunday. We're actually going to celebrate that as a church together. But Jesus says, now go and tell. Be my witnesses. Go talk about what you have seen here. Right? If Jesus really rose from the grave, shouldn't that be what we are talking about? How much time have we wasted talking about politics and the weather and sports when Jesus rose from the dead? Right? That is what is to be on our lips all of the time. But I said here, Jesus commissions his disciples to rejoice. And so here's the very final few verses of the book of Luke. It says, and he, as, and he led them out as far as Bethany. 
Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. See, the book of Luke doesn't end with doubt or despair or worry. It ends with rejoicing and joy. The disciples run back into Jerusalem and they are exclaiming with joy all the things that Jesus has done right? Now, I know there are times where we need to be taking our faith seriously. When we talk about sin, when we talk about judgment, there are times where we ought to be serious. Those things are not flippant. But our overriding disposition should be one of joy. The message of Jesus doesn't end in death. It ends in life. It ends in celebration, in feasting. Right? There is always a reason to rejoice in this life because our end is not despair, but the joy of heaven. And so the call for us is that actually this should be our disposition. Easter is a day of celebration and of, uh, of joy. I know so often, you know, especially if you've been in the church for a while, you can become very, very jaded about Easter and in fact about a lot of celebrations. We say, you know, they're all just commercialized. They've all become so, so, you know, obsessed with chocolate or the Easter bunny and all this sort of stuff. And we almost become grumpy about it. Ugh, can't believe we have to do this again. Hear me, I, I agree that, that that's not what Easter is all about. Easter is not all about the candy and the chocolate as much as those things might be nice. Easter is about the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead, but our response should not be grumpiness or, or grumbling about that, but actually overwhelming with joy. Should we not be more excited the fact that Jesus is alive, that we have our salvation than any child is to receive chocolate on Easter Sunday? Actually, yeah, that is to be our hope. And so Jesus commissions his disciples to go and share and they go and rejoice. Hear me, those are not two different things. Evangelism and celebration are actually co-workers together. They work best together. When you celebrate what Jesus has done, when you tell others about why you're excited, about why you're rejoicing, what you're doing is sharing the gospel. And as you share more, you have more to rejoice. And as you rejoice more, you have more even to share with others. In fact, they, they work together. They feed back one off of the other. And so let us begin with joy this morning. Let us celebrate and be glad that Jesus is alive. All of the promises that God has made throughout these centuries have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is alive today. And one day we will stand forever with him in this grand banquet hall of heaven and celebrate together. So this Easter Sunday, let us celebrate. Let us rejoice and look forward to the day when we can see Jesus face to face. This passage begins with a lot of doubt, but it doesn't end there. It ends in rejoicing because Jesus really did rise. He got up from the tomb and because he has done that, it has changed everything. We can have new life in him and the hope of eternal life forever in heaven. And so this Easter Sunday, let us rejoice, let us celebrate and proclaim that Jesus is alive forevermore. Let's pray together. Oh, our heavenly father, we are so grateful 
Lord, we are so grateful for what you have done in Jesus Christ. Lord, you sent him here to earth to live and dwell among us, to live a a perfect life, to show us what it looks like to actually follow you. But Lord, then you, you brought him to the cross to pay for our sins, though we deserved it, Jesus died in our place. And so, Father, I, I pray this morning that we would, we would repent of our sins, that we would turn our backs to them, and that we would cling to Jesus, that we would confess we cannot do this, but Jesus has done it all. Father, would you transform our lives because of that truth that we would celebrate and rejoice all the more, all the more gladly because you are alive, that we have this hope of eternal life that nothing can take away. Father, we thank you for Easter Sunday. We thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name, amen.